production of Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM. I am your host, James Butler, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about taking it all back. But before mass seizure and the liberation of the common treasury, just to point you to Resonance's fundraiser, which has been going on for two weeks now. Um, this is, <laughs> I've said before on the show, but I'll, I'll highlight it again. Resonance, of course, uh, does amazing things here in London. Uh, it does extremely important uh, work in, in both the creative field, but bringing to light things that, that are otherwise completely missing from the media landscape. So if you pop on over to fundraiser.resonance.fm, you can give there and explore just some of the many brilliant things the station has to offer. Uh, so yeah, go ahead and do that. Drop some cash. Uh, <laughs> so taking it all back. Uh, I am joined in the studio today by uh, Grace Blakely, who will now be familiar to our listeners as Economic Brain Box and IPPR policy guru. Uh, Michael Walker, the host of Navarra Media's The Fix and our resident class war social democrat. And hopefully very soon we'll be joined in the studio by my Navarra Media co-founder Aaron Bastani, uh, my uh, fully automated luxury communist friend and social media provocateur. Uh, Aaron has been held up by the parlour state of trains in this country, which failed to run on time. Uh, so this show grows out of the conference held by the Labour Party last weekend. Uh, this was the Alternative Models of Ownership report. Uh, it, it grew out of that uh, document, which, which, of course, we had prior to the, um, to the general election uh, last year. Uh, but the the conference was developing the the ideas present in that, but also I think trying to move beyond them. Uh, and I, it was a terribly interesting conference. Uh, my impression is that it was pretty wide ranging. It was pretty expansive. Uh, I tweeted about it at great length. Uh, I'm sure I got muted by many people while doing so, so I won't recap all of it here. Um, but but you can find them on Twitter. Uh, we will develop some of its themes as the conversation goes on, and hopefully move beyond them as well. But my sense of it was that it was an attempt to move beyond or recognition that common sense is moving on uh, from from what used to be the sort of policy default of neoliberalism. Uh, there was a lot of reference to changing politics of ownership in Europe and beyond. Uh, a lot of conversation about the local model in Preston, which we've talked about on the show before, thinking about going beyond the state as a chief or, or sole shareholder, lots of excitement about universal basic services, UBS, uh, and uh, a kind of real uh, desire to avoid top-down nationalisation uh, and bureaucratic ownership, whatever that uh, might mean in practice. Michael, you were there as well. What were mm -hmm. your impressions? Uh, I thought it was a great conference. I didn't do any tweeting. I was a bit too hungover that day. But... <laughs> Uh, I think to summarise what it was about, it was basically putting some flesh on how Labour are going to reverse neoliberalism. So it was talking about how we're going to bring the industries which have been privatised under a model which has been shown to fail and do so in a way that doesn't repeat the same mistakes as the 1970s. I think we'll probably discuss about how that's in practice going to work because mm -hmm. it's quite easy to say it will be less top-down and more democratic this time when we nationalise the water around the rails, or whether we should even worry that much if it's if it's top down. Maybe it's fine to have some industries that are, but that's that's for discussion. <laughs> uh, so it's returning Britain to a mixed economy where those utilities are nationalised. However, we do that. Then there was also quite a lot of discussion of how we can change ownership at the margins of what we what we think of as the consumer economy. So what is now and always really has been predominated by private ownership, so some support for co-ops and what that could look like. I imagine that will always be quite marginal, but mm. I mean, it's, it's good to support that. Um, as you say, community wealth building. And then probably the most speculative and ambitious 
uh, seminar I went to was the one about platform monopolies. Um, ambitious partly because that's the one where you're really challenging the vested interests of the businesses of the future. So the discussion there was about whether Facebook is now so big, well, Facebook and Google and all these platforms, whether they're so big that they need some serious government regulation or some sort of democratic control. And a lot of discussion about data, uh, which the analogy I quite liked, which was data is the oil of the 21st century economy. So just like how um, you're making a face. It's not my. It's not my words. Well, zero, <laughs> no, but, zero marginal cost of production for data. Really. Yeah. Well, but, but that's. Well, but yeah. that's no. In ter- it's the oil in terms of for the economy to function. That is the raw material. So yeah, yeah, for yeah. industrialization, um, you need oil to keep those factories mm. going. For AI, you need data for that for those programs to work. Mm. Um, so just as we've throughout the 20th century had quite a lot of interest over who controls oil reserves. We should now have quite a lot of interest in who mm. controls data reserves. Mm-hmm. Grace, tell me about ownership. Why does it matter? Who owns what in the British economy? Okay, so small question to start <laughs> with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so what is ownership, right? Ownership is it's a, it's a social construct. It's a legal construct. Um, it is created by the existence of a state that is willing to enforce property rights without a state there is no such thing as ownership um there is you know you can't say something is yours without a state that's willing to enforce that both physically and legally um who owns what is a very good question and the short answer is actually we don't know so um you know on the one hand there are literally things that we still have no records on so for example we don't know who owns a good chunk of the land in this country we have the land registry which was hilariously privatized um but that only records transactions it doesn't record a kind of stock of land so we're still in a position we don't know who owns a lot of the land um in terms of who owns all the assets so these are kind of financial assets uh, property um various different forms of physical assets Uh, The Wealth and Asset Survey is the closest we have to a kind of approximation of um, of who owns what. I will not get too wonky and talk. <laughs> James is giving me like, okay, blah, blah, blah. Um, which is basically a, a big survey that uh, the Office for National Statistics mm-hmm. does every year um, and which tries to kind of understand uh, who owns what. And there are four categories, financial wealth, so kind of stocks and shares, property, um, physical wealth, which is like predominantly cars, but also other like paintings and stuff, and then private pensions wealth. Uh, and w- according to that survey, which is flawed because uh, the rates of response amongst very, very rich people are much lower, um, you get a situation in which the top um, 10% own about 50% of the wealth um, and the bottom... the, the, yeah, whilst the, the bottom half has about 10%. Mm. Um, and that says nothing about the concentration within those two camps. So there's a, a lot of people who have negative real wealth because they have more debt than assets. And in the kind of top 1% or the, you know, or the top 0.1%, um, it, it's, again, much more concentrated. So, you know, we don't have stats on this, but, like, according to the Sunday Times Rich List, the wealthiest 1,000 people have a combined wealth of 658 billion. And, you know, you have all the stuff from Oxfam. That mm-hmm. What is it? Is it eight people this year yeah. that have mm-hmm. the same wealth as the bottom? 50%. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a lot of people kind of argue that this doesn't account for human capital. So like me, for example, who has more debt than assets, which technically be uh, be classed as kind of quite low down in the wealth spectrum, but that doesn't account for human capital. But it's mm-hmm. still a, an interesting, mm-hmm. yeah, an interesting way of measuring it. And these, and uh, so we've been talking also about ownership of companies. So, uh, and this is, this is again, one of the things that become, that, that was very, very much on the agenda on Saturday was talking about, okay, so how you can change the kind of, you know, how uh, private companies are governed, how 
you know, uh, in fact, one of the, the things that became very clear pretty early on in the day was a very, you know, very clear dissection from Andrew Cumbers, whose recent book, uh, Public Ownership in the 21st Century, has informed a lot of my thinking today. So I'll just give it a little plug at the top of the show. It's a very good book. It's worth reading. Um, he was making the point that, that, that the Thatcherite revolution, um, which claimed to be about uh, empowering uh, you know, uh, <laughs> the ordinary uh, uh, citizen to become a kind of uh, participant in property-owning democracy or shareholding democracy. Uh, although you had very early on people buying shares in, say, British Gas when it was privatised, they were deliberately underpriced. Uh, Lord Lawson, Nigel Lawson, made uh, this very, very clear in, in some of his writing. Uh, and then subsequently, these were very rapidly sh- sold off to a kind of you know, large uh, investors. Uh, so, so the, this notion—it was, you know, it was uh, one of these kind of privatization moves that, that uh, you know, only very briefly moves through the kind of sphere of the public and then comes mm-hmm. back to kind of large capital. But I think that's it. I, you know, I think this is really, you know, the the, the state we're in. It, it's quite important to 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 just, uh, you know, underscore how uh, sharply the 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 share of national income that goes to capital uh, versus labour has increased over mm. the past few decades. I mean, that, that is, you know, that, that to me is, is at the centre of these questions about ownership, right? Because who owns what means, you know, that's where capital flows mm. go. Um, and it's really, really striking. Uh, you know, particularly, I mean, it's particularly true in the UK, but it's also a global picture, right? Mm. Yeah, um, I have managed to bring up Michael Hudson and Minsky. I think every time I've been on this show. But I think it's important because that is a a really big reason why wealth inequality is such an important thing or why ownership matters. It's because when you get um, a small proportion of people owning a lot of the stuff um, and a lot of other people who need that stuff but don't own it, uh, the former have to rent out their stuff to the latter. And they do so over and above the cost um, they are required to, to produce those things, which means that they are extracting something called economic rents from the rest of the population. And um, they own all the land, basically. They own all the capital. So the main things they lend to the rest of the populace are uh, property. Uh, so we pay rents for that. And um, and capitals, so we pay interest for that. Um, and as ownership is more and more concentrated, um, that means that more and more interest and rent is being sucked from the majority of the population up to the people at the top. And that creates a self-reinforcing cycle called what Minsky calls a debt deflation cycle, in which... Um, kind of more income from ordinary people uh, is taken out of the real economy. So you don't go and spend it in your local supermarket. You spend it on interest payments. It goes to people at the top. That enriches them. They're able to buy more stuff. And also you may have gotten into so much debt that you default, which means that your stuff then goes to the people at the top again. And it creates this self-reinforcing cycle whereby ordinary people become more indebted and the wealthy people become wealthier, which eventually leads to the kind of stagnation that we see in the economy today and the high levels of indebtedness. And Minsky's argument uh, related to this is that this causes... Uh, systemic financial instability, which is what happens in the run-up to 2007, Mm. because as soon as people become so indebted that they can't borrow anymore, their rate of borrowing has to slow down. And when the rate of borrowing slows down, they stop being able to buy as much stuff, uh, and that slows the economy down, which has a kind of contagion effect throughout the rest of the economy, throughout financial markets, and you get a crash. Um, And, uh, yeah, Minsky's written about this, Steve Keen's written about Mm. this, how it characterises our economy today. One of the things that that gets brought up in conversation about this or in in kind of a lot of kind of leftist agitation about it is the idea that the people who... who benefit from this are often foreign or kind Mm. of, uh, you know, they are either international capitalists or huge transnational firms. So you have firms buying up 
uh, assets who well, investment in, in kind of financial products. Uh, does it matter that these aren't homegrown British rentiers? Uh, in terms of, does it matter? So in terms of rent, I think privatising anything that all you do is extract rent from it is, is stupid. I mean, I, I think there's an argument for private industry and private markets where competition can have a role and where that can bring about efficiency and productivity. But in terms of land, why we sold off the land, that just seems bonkers to me, uh, whoever happens to own it. In terms of whether we should care whether it is transnational firms or local firms or national firms who have an influence in, in our communities, I am quite persuaded to the localism end of the spectrum by what everyone's been talking about in terms of the Preston model. Mm which prioritised procuring or using what they call anchor institutions, which was mm. six big public industries or six big public services. So it was the FE colleges, the council, to get them to procure locally instead of from whoever was the cheapest uh, offerer of building services or school dinner services. And why that really matters is it's not just a zero-sum game. It's not just that money staying in Preston instead of going to another town with equally working class people it's that once you have small and medium businesses in a local area they'll pay tax they'll employ more people than if it goes to a multinational firm so it's not so much it shouldn't always be about a zero-sum game of does that property go to a british person or a non-british person it's what kind of firm does it go to Mm -hmm. is it a firm that's locally based or one that's in tax havens and Mm. I just want to welcome Aaron to the studio, who has made it, uh, despite the uh, uh, lamentable service of Southern Rail. I mean, in defence of Southern, um, <laughs> I did get up at about half six, and then I decided about ten I'd have a quick nap, and uh, I got up at twelve. There we go. But, having, but, having but it, rushed to the studio. But Southern is it is terrible. Yeah. It's um, terrible. And it I was like I am super privileged to be on with all the Navarra lads, by the way. <laughs> I thought this. An extremely macho show, of course, <laughs> talking about numbers and things like that. <laughs> so uh, I, I wanted to I wanted to ask, I guess, so in, in counterposition to the kind of post um the the kind of post that's right landscape, often particularly in the Labour Party, but also to the left of the Labour Party as well, you get an argument that the desire ought to be to return to something like the post-1945 uh, political economic consensus. And I just wanted to, to, to maybe, Michael, I know you've been doing a bit of reading on this, just give us some idea about what actually the nationalisations of the Attlee government looked like, what they did. Because I think, this is, I think this is important to get a clear sense of what people are talking about when they're pushing for this kind of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. So my research is from the same source as James's, which is this book by Andrew Cumbers. <laughs> I won't tell you the title again. Um, so... How nationalisation... It's actually the same story that's told in the Alternative Models of Ownership mm. uh, paper, which is also a very interesting document to read. Um, so that's after the war where the Labour government wants to bring... wants to basically agglomerate uh, a bunch of quite disparate businesses that are running things like the railways and the mining industry. But according to his account, this wasn't really to distribute power in the workplace, but it was for a sort of national project of modernisation... So it was still very top-down. Control over the rail industry and the mining industry was given to bureaucratic experts. The idea was that they didn't really want ownership shared by the unions because they saw them as a vested interest, which would undermine the the drive to make them become efficient. Uh, he describes them being very resistant to anything that looked at all like syndicalism mm. because that would, that would threaten the model they were 
they were going for. The problem was that it didn't even achieve the modernization bit. So, and the reason it didn't achieve the modernization bit was because of the political economy of Britain at the time, which was too skewed to the financial sector. So you had these nationwide industries controlled from London, and what these industries needed was, was massive investment. But the government at the time was prioritizing keeping the pound strong to keep the city of London strong, and that meant they were very reluctant to invest in these industries. So he describes um, industries which are crippled by the fact that one, they can't set their own prices, Two, they can't raise money on the financial markets. So you end up with chronic underinvestment. And basically, you have nationalized industries which are making a loss and they're subsidizing the private industries whose sluggishness is being masked by the fact that they get to use, well, the cheap postal service and the cheap rail service and cheap coal and energy. Yeah. So I, I think there's an important distinction also that Compass draws from the uh, important in, in my politics. Uh, early 20th century council communist Anton Panikuk, who says uh, public ownership and common ownership are not quite the same thing. So he, he he points out that, you know, he he uses a distinction between public ownership, where this is something where essentially a committee of the state, uh, you know, governs these services nominally in the public interest, but in fact operates largely like uh, a manager. And then says common ownership uh, would be a kind of democratization of these services, of these industries, uh, in which, quote, uh, the right of disposal is by the workers themselves, the working class itself, taken in the wider sense of all that partake in really productive work, including employees, farmers, scientists, i.e. direct master of the production apparatus, managing, directing, regulating the process of production, which is indeed their common work. Now, one of the things that I think becomes problematic over the course of the 20th century is you have to deal with shifts in the kind of political structure of nation states. You have to deal with kind of actually an increasing... Uh, proximity between the vast mass of people and at least the kind of uh, who are enfranchised, who are capable of, of in some way having a stake in the state. And indeed, public ownership and common ownership uh, often has a kind of quite porous margin, I think. Uh, nonetheless, I think the distinction is important and useful. Uh, and I think it really highlights one of the problems in the UK, uh, which, you know, you have very, very little change in actually the UK's political economic structure which allows the kind of Hayekians, allows the, the, the Friedmanites to come in and say, well, actually, look, this stuff, you know, it doesn't work. Uh, and you have, I think, this quite interesting intellectual project that arises, uh, you know, out of Hayek, but also out of Milton Friedman, uh, to say, you know, this is what happens when you have uh, nationalised industries. There are serious intellectual problems uh, with attempting kind of, uh, you know, centralised and planned economies. I also think we have to um, mention that this is a reflection of the TUC. Mm. And of course, Britain in the 19th century had very interesting, powerful unions, but they were craft-based unions. They were small. The TUC was set up as an umbrella organisation. Now, it viewed itself effectively uh, by the beginning of the 20th century as an analogue to the CBI. And after the failure of the general strike and after the failure of the Ramsay MacDonald government, uh, the TUC was effectively saying, we now need to create the policy, the structural apparatus by which a Labour government can implement socialist policies. What does that look like? And so naturally, I think that model of nationalisation, which was inevitable after 1945 probably, uh, happened to reflect the TUC. And I think, yes, on the one hand, um, you know, that expresses fundamentals within the UK economy, but also I think 
strategic choices that were taken by the Labour movement. Yeah, absolutely. And the party itself as well, right? Who brought all these sort of uh, finance people onto national coal board and things like that. I think there's a a kind of broader issue which is at the the centre of some of the the issues I have with the, the ownership narrative more broadly, which is that, you know, all the things you're talking about, the way in which you overcome that principal agent problem, um, the kind of structure, sorry, that was wonky, the kind of um, who manages and in whose interests, um, and um, the kind of the, the way in which these national nationalised organisations work, whether it's public, whether it's collective ownership, does, as you were saying, reflect um, kind of broader political economic structures, right? So in the UK, you're right, a government dominated by finance ends up pursuing a particular form of nationalisation. We were talking earlier about how it was very different in France because they had this, this industrial policy. Um, and so, you know, when I... When I kind of talk about these things, I kind of think about what the biggest problem Labour faces in implementing some of these objectives are. And I don't think primarily about a kind of policy solution or um, winning the argument on the economy. I think about about political economy, about who has the power. Um, Because, you know, we're in this situation because financial capital in particular in the 1970s, as you were saying, was able to uh, take control of the Conservative Party, use it to win an election and then take control of the state and use the state to build hegemony mm. to re to mold the kind of social structure in its interests it's not like you know financial capitalists won the election in the 1980s and were like right okay we're done let's go about just kind of taking everyone's money they were like no you know they knew that um electoral power is just the first step um and so you know the first thing they said about doing was breaking the power of labor uh through the kind of war on inflation through uh, the crushing of the unions um the second thing they did was to empower themselves through deregulation, through the Big Bang. And finally, over the course of the last 30 years, they've progressively um, just kind of eviscerated the social capital of the UK. Um, So whether it's kind of getting rid of public spaces, damaging public services, just kind of progressively limiting people's power to resist. And that has been part of a long term project, which has led to a slow and steady but inexorable accumulation on the part of the wealthiest people in this country. And I think if we are going to try and do a similar sort of thing, so erode their hegemony and and build up their hegemony, so their kind of broad social power, um, and build up a similar sort of thing in its place, then we need to have this kind of view. Not like, we're going to win the election, we're going to implement these technocratic policy solutions, everyone's going to be like, wow, the economy's working so well now, like, we all love Labour. Think about the kind of, there's this, Great quote. I've got it here. Oh, yeah. Frederick Douglass. Power concedes nothing without a demand. Um, and just kind of remember that and remember the kind of the struggle that we're going to have to mm. deal with and, and how we're going to build up our own our own set of, of social forces to support the, yeah. the, the. Yeah. I mean, I think this is striking. I mean, you know, just studying how these people manage to do this is important mm. as well. And we don't have the luxury of enormous sources of right wing funding. Uh, and we don't have the luxury of, you know, a couple of decades before we take power to kind of hone these ideas. We have ideas and we have them now and we have them here. But, you know, their effects, if you look at, you know, the statistics between 1980 and 1996, the UK was responsible for 40% of the total assets privatised by OECD countries. Mm. I mean, that is astonishing. And that was over twice that of the second largest privatiser, which was France. Mm. Uh, state-owned enterprises went from... Uh, accounting for more than 10% of GDP to in and that would be 1979 to by 1997 virtually nothing uh, that is an enormous change and we should be thinking in equally <laughs> dramatic terms which brings us on I think to the next part of this show which is thinking about actually what this will look like so we, we've talked a bit about 
you know, one of the, you know, some of the failures of nationalisation, what gets called the Morrisonian model, is this kind of failure to address the question of internal productive relations within a company, the failure to draw on things like, so in the 70s, you would have people putting forward things like the alternative economic strategy, which was a strategy that united the left of the Labour Party, with the Communist Party, with the Tribune Group, things like that, who would say, you know, that one of the problems has been that we've allowed, uh, you know, nationalisation or socialisation to take on this, this reputation as being kind of, you know, sluggish and, you know, bureaucratic and incompetent. But that's partly a reflection of the failure of these models of nationalisation um, to, to really take take this on. And then we have the, the problem of financialization as well. So these these seem to me you know, to be some of the problems that we face. There's also the problem of ignorance. So the question about how you actually, uh, you, you know, deal with these things. So the, the historical failures of, of these industries, can, you know, do it's not just because there are evil capitalists out there, right? Mm-hmm. It's because there are, there are some major problems which aren't just problems of um, computing power. They're also problems about the kind of tacit knowledge that operates in economies, right? The problem of knowing what consumer needs are in something that's not like energy where you can pretty easily quantify uh, your output. You don't have mixed uh, output and energy. You have like kilowatt per hour. Uh, and that's that's quite easy to predict. There are other sectors that, that in which that's more difficult. Um, and these systems are dynamic and evolutionary, right? So they change over time. So these seem to me to be the big problems that aren't just about political power, but also intrinsic to thinking about what it would mean uh, you know, to take these things out of a market mechanism uh, and, and deal with them in a different way. Uh, so any ideas on that? <laughs> I think in terms of taking them out of the market mechanism, a lot of those problems, we need to have in perspective what we're talking about nationalising. We're nationalising utilities, which function perfectly well as nationalised utilities mm-hmm. in other countries right now that also have a very similar mixed economy to our own. So the so, ones that people point to are telecoms, for instance. So this, I don't the, think we're going to renationalise telecoms, are we? I thought it was. I, I think at the moment it seems to be utilities, rail, and water. <clears throat> um, and I, again, I'm not that convinced, or I'm not yet convinced about the fact that the problem with nationalisation in Britain was that it was top down. Because to me, it looks like the French model is also quite top down. The difference was the industrial strategy the nation had, which meant that they invested in in these industries when they didn't in in Britain. Uh, in the alternative models of ownership. Uh, article one point they make about the French nationalised industries is that instead of giving them over to a bureaucrat, there was a board which had people from trade unions, people from consumer groups and experts and people from the state on it. But how... um, But that's still a very centralised body and how democratic that actually made the companies, I think, is open for debate and it seems to be more about the broader industrial policy. Um, In terms of, yeah, market... In terms of... uh, about incentives and how you'd run this sort of nationalised industry, I think, yeah, we can look to examples. These are big utilities, they're natural monopolies. It's not like you're nationalising consumer industries. My worry in terms of politically is that Thatcher had quite a big advantage when she sold off everything, which was that the short-term results were quite positive for everyone. So the government got a windfall when they sold off the family silver. Um, It was quite clever the way they undervalued a lot of these utilities Mm. because it meant that there was quite a there was quite a large amount of people who got a short-term gain, even if society... Yeah, with the post office and... Yeah. So the negatives are longer term. So short-term, it looks good. Exactly the same with council homes. So you sell off council mm-hmm. homes, you win the support of shed loads of people who've just bought their council mm-hmm. home. And the problem is later down the line. And I'm not sure when Labour nationalises these utilities, if you're going to see an instant improvement. But you are going to see a lot of opposition. So that's mm-hmm. from big business. I mean, I would disagree... 
I would say we need to create an energy investment bank, which would immediately give effectively zero credit energy insulation, uh, photovoltaic cells, energy storage in people's homes. You know, tens of thousands of people every year die from the cold in this country. So you'd want to retrofit the homes of pretty much everybody over 60. All of a sudden, their energy bills collapse. Uh, and like I say, this would be financed through a state investment bank, which focuses exclusively on energy. And look, that's how you deal with this energy bills crisis. You're not going to nationalise E.ON or Scottish Power. That's how you're going to do it. And that would finance not just energy at the level of the household, but also energy cooperatives, municipal energy uh, in Manchester, in London, in Bournemouth, or in Balcombe, wherever. And they would be financed by the state agency. And the point is they would pay far, far less than they do at present. And then, of course, the great thing with renewables is all the, all the price comes from the sunk cost. Once you've done that, it's effectively cost neutral because you're not then having to pay for gas and mm -hmm. petroleum or whatever as an ongoing cost. So it, it, it works out but effectively as being, you know, cost neutral over the longer mm -hmm. term. But it's just the state's burdening that by financing this. And it still could get maybe a slight return somehow to, to carry on the process. I would then um, extend that principle of, an, of a national investment bank into uh, what I would call the commons economy and effectively trying to create new kinds of platform which uh, undermine things like uh, Uber or uh, Amazon. And again, this could be at the municipal or the national level because at the moment, the value captured by these companies, it's not the fixed capital. Uber, the fixed capital is the car, the phone, i.e. the computer. The worker has that. And all that Uber is doing is acting as an intermediary between supply and demand with the entire value capture coming in the information. Not anybody, not anybody can do that, mm. but quite a few people at the municipal level can build those kinds of platforms. And in effect, that's, an, that's a, a workers' cooperative that they could build. So I think that a state investment bank would also focus on funding these kinds of projects, incubating them. In terms of old school nationalisation, I would say local bus services. That would be popular. Yeah. Nobody thinks they work. Mm -hmm. And trains. And initially, I would take it very slowly. To me, I'll be honest, I think water nationalisation, it looks, to the public, it looks ideological. It just looks ideological. I, I think there are, there are a couple of different reasons that you would nationalise something, right? Or that there are arguments for nationalising something. Firstly, that's a, natu a natural monopoly, so transport. Secondly, it's that service provision is poor. Those two things are often related. And the final thing would be to achieve kind of wider positive economic outcomes. So, you know, if you were to do a state investment bank, you would uh, say you could um, get the state investment bank to buy up 51% of the shares in a particular company or 100% or whatever you want to do. Um, you could then, stick, you know, get the dividends to, that for, to go into a sovereign wealth fund which um, could hold a load of different assets for society as well, which would be part of a broader socialisation of wealth. And you could also get the, the state investment bank to invest on things other than profitability. Um, and those two objectives would be in, in slight tension, but there would be a balance to be struck between them. And um, the way you do this, so whether or not you just buy equities, whether or not you just de facto say this is now a state-owned enterprise or whatever you want to do, depends on the particular thing that you're trying to achieve. And, and also, what we were talking about earlier about a kind of top-down versus democratic structures of ownership um, depends a lot on corporate governance, which does on the one hand also depend on political economy, but also depends on uh, the, the way in which you do the nationalisation and the mm -hmm. way in which you structure the corporate governance and the organisation 
decision after you've done it. And I just think this argument that state-owned enterprises are are inherently kind of top-down and awful is is not only wrong, but it also fails to account for the way in which the private sector behaves. Mm. So I used to work for like a huge uh, global accountancy slash consultancy firm. And I can tell you that like the way that thing worked, it was so inefficient, so top-down. Decisions were made based on like which of the partners was currently like the biggest deal rather than anything else. Um, And so, you know, the the reason that it worked that way was because, and the reason most firms work that way and are inherently short-termist and highly centralised is because they function based on this ideology of the maximisation of shareholder value, Mm. which is enshrined into the Companies Act. Um, And, you know, that doesn't have to be the way that companies work. We were talking a little bit earlier about um, kind of my view of this from the perspective of and, I, and this kind of almost comes across as like non-political and non-ideological but it's something to consider right which is management of an organization that is a complex system and complex systems are systems that are teetering on the edge constantly mm. between order and chaos right and if you completely cede control then they descend into chaos if you try and centralize too much then they become these top-down things that can't um, adapt and, and change according to context. So you do have to kind of be able to create a model of corporate governance which combines some sort of, of top-down vision setting uh, from the state or from the board with a measure of democratic uh, engagement and control from the bottom up. Not just because it's it's good and it's democratic and it improves kind of worker voice, but also because it, that's how the best companies work. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say, I mean, you know, one thing that we should bear in mind is that water is not privatised across the entirety of the UK. Not in Scotland, True. not in mm. not in uh, the North of Ireland. Uh, <laughs> it's it's important to, to remember that. So, so the question of whether it's ideological or not is, you know, I think. I know I just said looks. I mean, yeah, mm. sure. You know, the I think we should nationalise far more than water. <laughs> the other thing I think is, that is interesting is, so Michael, you're talking about, you know, you know, nationalisation being limited to these kind of natural monopolies, kind of core utility industries. But the ownership report does go beyond that, and something that kind of Grace is touching on is the kind of support for worker buyouts, for instance, mm. um, the the kind of strong support for the cooperative sector. Um, you know, I think I think it's fair to say I think that co-ops will probably are a marginal part of capitalism, and probably will remain a relatively marginal part of capitalism. Although, uh, you know, institutional support for them is is, is I think quite important. Um, so I, I'm curious about you know going beyond just talking about the nationalisation of these natural monopolies, which is a relatively kind of key consensus point on the left, but but actually changing you know the world of work more generally. So that question of how uh, you actually change the social power uh, of, of of the working class through you know through policy, mm-hmm. and I think that that is actually really interesting. One of the things that uh, I I've been sort of revisiting, and I haven't I hadn't read the book for a long time. I read it when it came out. Was Eric Owen Wright's uh, Envisioning Realistic Utopias, and you know I think there are problems with the book. I think it kind of it, there is a, you know as there often is in analytical Marxism, a complete absence of history. Um, you know, there's no real kind of grasp of actual, you know, the actual consequences of, of things like this in history, the absence of any kind of uh, historical documentation of class struggle. But there are some really, really strong uh, arguments in there about the way in which under a capitalist economy, you can build class power uh, via what looked like pretty reformist and actually pretty kind of mm. uh, capitalist means. And, and so one of those uh, is, you know, one of the things he makes reference to is the Meidner plan, um, I know, I know everyone knows what that is, but our listeners probably don't. So does one of you want to take that on? Yeah, well, I, su- I suppose we're moving now into yeah, the, the, the broader economy where we think of normal profit-making consumer firms. And I think what's clever about the, what the Labour Party are talking about, which isn't the Minor Plan, which I'll explain in a minute, uh, is, is more about allowing for 
fostering experimentation, basically. So it's saying we're, we're basically going to have a mixed economy that looks like something you're quite used to, but we'll experiment with different ownership forms at the margins by doing some quite simple things which really support cooperatives. So in Italy, 800,000 people work in the cooperative sector, so it's not completely insignificant. And one of the reasons, one of the ways that's possible is by giving sort of proper funding from state-backed banks because uh, financial services or, or big private investors are less inclined to invest in a cooperative because it doesn't offer them any control. Sort of by, by definition, it has to be controlled by the workers. So <clears throat> there's many sort of small things the state can do to really encourage that sort of flourishing of alternatives which we can then learn from. Also because it's experimenting at the margins, it's not going to lead to disaster. Uh, in terms of the Meidner plan, which is a much more ambitious plan, so that was uh, the proposal of the Swedish social, well, actually the Swedish labour organisation in the 1970s, so their version of the TUC. And the idea was that instead of putting a corporate tax on businesses, you'd mandate them to give a certain share of their profits in the form of shares to some sort of worker-owned company. Um, the idea was that this would gradually transfer the power over all the big firms in Sweden to workers or workers-owned bodies. So I think in the Swedish case, it was going to be to sort of locally, local unions. Not the union in the workplace, sort of like a broader, a broader union body. Um, this didn't... And, and this would be super radical because this is mm. literally... You've got the working class taking over all the big all the big companies in a country. This didn't happen there because of vociferous opposition and I think they didn't bring people enough people with them really. Um, but that's, that's something radically different to what we have now and doesn't seem to be on Labour's agenda just yet. Um, I want to inject some Paul Mason, some, <laughs> some post-capitalism. Always welcome. Mm-hmm. Because obviously at the beginning of the 20th century you have, well, there are three ways to do things with high cost of entry. The oligarch model, you're really rich. The state model, which was kind of growing, and obviously after 1917 and after 1945, actually really during the 1930s with the New Deal in the US, it gained traction. And then, of course, there's the market model, where people access the the produced good through the price mechanism. There's a return on investment. We all know how that works. So these three ways of doing things. Now, broadly speaking, today, uh, public goods are produced through either the market model or the state model, almost always a mix of the two, right, really? Um, And what Paul says is that there's actually this new phenomenon of commons-based production where we see things being produced outside of the price mechanism. Now, at the moment, this just happens with information. Classic example is Wikipedia. Wikipedia is free. The Encyclopedia Britannica used to be $1,400. Uh, today, you can, you can, I think you pay $2 a month to access it. Nobody does, because Wikipedia is better. It's got, I think, it's across 300 languages. Uh, I mean, over 40 million articles, I think. Just a phenomenal thing. So the key question is, how integral is information as a factor of production? Because if it is as integral as a factor of production as people like Peter Drucker, um, even Karl Marx, if you interpret him in a certain way, if it's going to become increasingly central as a factor of production and it's moving to zero, what does that mean for the price mechanism? And Paul says a progressive project in that context is creating or trying to expand the commons economy. And it will be at the margins, it already is, Wikipedia, which is the fifth biggest website on the internet, by the way. Amazon's number 10, um, you have a state-backed project which tries to expand that kind of production to ever broader spheres of the economy. Now, at the moment, it's limited to cultural goods, uh, but I suspect it will bleed into other industries. The question is how far. Uh, And I think that's a question we need to, again, engage with, commons-based production. Yeah, so 
Yeah, the, the, the thing about information is interesting, isn't it, right? Because because it has the it's zero marginal cost of, of production, it's impossible to price. Um, so you either get, as you say, it being produced kind of for free um, and, uh, you know, in the, in this common common way, or you get the oligarchy model because you need to be able to build up a network in order to take advantage of a, basically a monopoly rent for the production of, of something that has a zero... That means that for every extra bit of information, there's no extra cost associated with the production of it. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the the interesting thing about that is that it matters that we've had the emergence of these huge monopolies that are able to take advantage of these network effects because the ownership of them is so concentrated. There was a really interesting article in the FT the other day, actually, that showed that um, all the big tech firms are now increasingly acting like banks. Because they have these huge cash reserves that they hold in, um, you know, Bermuda or, you know, wherever, basically, they're paying zero tax. What they've done is use the fact that the markets will lend to them incredibly low interest rates and bought up corporate bonds that are higher yielding, um, basically, to allocate capital from one place to another. So they're they're essentially acting like banks. Um, And this... You know, the huge concentration of of ownership, of of wealth, of accumulation that that implies, that those kind of networked models of of companies imply. Um, You're right, it will continue to, they'll continue to grow, we'll continue to get more Googles, more Facebooks, and they'll get more and more powerful. But for me, I mean, you know, the the fact of that means, yes, of course, we need to experiment with like different forms of common ownership, but does of common production, it does come back to who owns these things, who's getting the returns from them, um, and what they're being used for. And this this surely makes the case for a central macroeconomic actor, at least at the level of the nation state, right? And so this is the problem, I think, that emerges from a lot of this question about these sort of commons-based or kind of highly, highly decentralised forms of production, which is, um, so the, the example that often gets used is Yugoslavia, uh, late Soviet, or sort of post-Soviet, really, because uh, Tito makes a break from USSR economic policy and highly decentralizes the economy and it leads to massive, massive uh, uh, uneven development within Yugoslavia. This inflames ethnic tensions and we have the inevitable tragedy after the fall of communism. But I think this is important in the absence of a central kind of macroeconomic actor, we, you know, and one that is highly interventionist, you inevitably develop these kind of you know, you know, massive, massive uneven... I, I, this is not an ideological claim as decentralized production. It's an observation as to ever more industries not being captured by the mm. price mechanism. And so the whole discussion around returns and to whom are irrelevant yeah. because things aren't falling within the price mechanism. And that, at the moment, is applicable to information. For instance, if we, have a, if we were to have media reform in this country, that would be the critical question. Because information is now effectively free, what kind of organisations do we create to broker it to foster a more democratic conversation? Now, I, that, that whole mindset of returns and to who, mm. if this idea of zero margin cost is correct... Uh, it's gonna. I think it's gonna disrupt a few of the presumptions. I agree. Around that. I, I agree to an extent, but I think that you know <laughs> the model that these things end up being produced by is determined by you know existing political economy, and there is a reason that we have moved towards a situation in which the massive tech monopolies have emerged, rather than all these things which could be you're right produced kind of open source or whatever are being produced by these big firms, and they are getting the gains from that. Like ultimately, when you have a huge concentration of corporate financial political power in one sector, they will use these developments to enrich themselves. So I think you know the the wider project is to transform political economy and to transform society before we can start thinking about, you know, completely different ways of doing things. So here is here I think we return actually to one of the questions that's been hovering over us through this entire discussion, which is 
the normative question, right? So one of the problems with state-owned industry in the course of the 20th century was effectively that it acted in the same way that a kind of shareholder body would in a corporate sense, right? It wanted to judge its activities via kind of capitalist logic of maximising return and essentially undertook kind of capitalist-style management of those industries to a very large extent. Uh, the, the, minimum, the, the differences were largely cosmetic and the experience of workers in that industry will tell you that much. Now, uh, that I think will change if we engage with these, these kind of normative questions and I think the normative question is an important one. Uh, so norm- by normative I mean actually the way in which uh, or the values by which or the goals to which uh, industries uh, operate. Uh, and at that point you begin to get a question about, okay, so you know, if, if you have a relatively constricted market, if you have, you know, a, you know, a change in social logic, then at what point does it cease to be capitalism? Uh, and that, I think, is one of the central questions in Paul's book. Uh, and I think that kind of evolutionary question about whether or not, you know, whether or not there needs to be a kind of political rupture is a really, really interesting, yeah. really important one. Uh, and one that I don't want to dwell on necessarily, just want to throw it out there, because I want to come on to the power of finance. So one of the things... <laughs> That and I know this is absolutely Grace's jam. So I that. I did say that to you. I also promised that I wasn't going to use the word financialization. That one doesn't count. It was an inverted commas. So, but so one of the things that that really isn't very present in the models of ownership report is any kind of engagement with the question of finance capital beyond kind of the question of investment banks, which is very yeah. very relatively small uh, proportion of, of the UK's financial picture. Mm-hmm. It is TUC policy to take the banks into public control. It was passed as a resolution put by the FBU in 2012. Wow. Um, as, as always with TUC policy, it doesn't necessarily bear any relation to what actually happens. Uh, but is that possible, Grace? I mean, you know, it seems like an, almost a taboo thing to talk yeah. about public control of finance. Yeah, so I think we kind of need to go back to thinking about what banks actually do, right? Um, and they do a couple of different things. Um, so there's retail banking, there's investment banking, which involves investment in lending to public companies and, and lending to states and various other crazy things that they now do. Um, so the way we normally think of like retail banking, for example, is that you put your money in a bank account, you pay the bank some money to provide you with a service. But that's not actually what's happening. What's happening is you're lending money to the bank uh, and the bank is then lending that money on to a higher rate at a different different person, um, whether it's a company or a government or whatever. Um, and kind of standard uh, neoclassical economic theory says that this is all banks do. Banks are just intermediaries. Um, money is just, uh, it, it's not something that has any kind of tangible impact on the economy. Um, and banks just basically intermediate between savers and borrowers. Now, we know that that's not true, but that is also a little bit what they do. So there's the separation that we need to kind of take into account of retail investment banking. There's an interesting thing that's going on at the moment, which is the the Bank of England has finally gone ahead with the recommendation of the Vickers Commission after the financial crisis that retail investment banking needs to be split for certain firms. Now, because the Bank of England's doing it, we know that it's not going to go far enough. But that is, you know, something that, you know, is, is presumably a good thing to do. Then there's the, the case of kind of what 
the state is going to be nationalizing? Is it going to be the retail banks, the investment banks, and, and what's it going to do with all these different things? Now, retail banking is very boring. It's not particularly profitable. And that's why the banks started moving into this fun, exciting investment banking territory. I mean, ideally, you want that to be done privately, but you want it not to be monopolized. Um, and so the problem we've had is that as soon as kind of any uh, like local banks come up, they get uh, and start to be successful, they get bought up by the big banks. So uh, this is the kind of idea that, that the New Economics Foundation has put forward that we need to take RBS and spin it out into a network of regional banks prevent those from being acquired by by the bigger banks. So that's kind of retail banking. Um, secondly, uh, you know, we need a state investment bank. So aside from, you know, actually kind of taking control of the investment banks, whatever that would look like, um, a kind of good way to socialise ownership would be to, as you said, set up a state investment bank. Um, and you could then, so you could capitalise it, for example, by, um, you could do it in a number of different ways. You could do it through QE. Um, by kind of printing money and using that to capitalise it. Um, and you could then determine what it invested in based on your kind of wider goals. So you could get it to, you know, a good way of socialising the consumer economy would be to get it to buy up corporate bonds. Um, you could also, I mean, what we've got now is the Bank of England owning government debt, which is something you could also do. Um, and uh, you could also get it to buy up uh, the, the bonds of, of equities, of, of equities, of uh, banks. Um, you would then get those equities and perhaps place them in a, um, or have the dividends go into a sovereign wealth fund, which could then either you know, give money back to the bank itself or which could invest in the real economy. Now, the issue with this is that if you did do all this via money printing, um, you, you would have an impact on inflation. The reason that QE hasn't been inflationary so far is because it's used new money to buy government debt. And those two things are essentially the same thing. It has to buy existing government debt. They're both money, basically. Money is debt, debt is money. Um, but if you started using this to kind of actually invest in the real economy, then there would be some inflationary impact. That isn't a bad thing, but these things would need to have a mandate that would cross, you know, uh, socialization of wealth through to inflation, through to growth, through, through, through to all these different things. Um, so that would be where I would start. Mm. Oh, also, I would, you know, one of the things that we should definitely do on this, social, other than breaking the power of finance, would be um, just a massive consumer debt cancellation, which mm. would be something that mm. would have an immediate impact and would also serve to reduce the power of finance and, and promote the ordinary people. Yeah, so I think in terms of the money printing bit, I think Labour have uh, refrained from suggesting that partly because it might be a, a media nightmare. <laughs> but it is it, it does seem to be a concept that's getting more and more support at the moment. I'm quite interested in the Adair Turner idea, which is that you have printing money as an option for the Bank of England mm. to do whenever there are deflationary pressures. Mm. So you use it as as a form of monetary policy, but instead of giving it straight to the banks in the form of the kind of QE we've had at the moment, you give it either to the government who are then free to just spend it on whatever they mm. want, or you give it directly to people's pockets, helicopter money, Milton mm. Friedman style. Um, I'm still a little, I'm going to be mean and ask a question now. I'm still <laughs> a, bit, a bit confused about how... What challenges the power of finance? So is is it the problem that in the 1980s we gave them too much to play with? As in once we privatised all the assets, that meant that they could speculate on them. So if we, yeah. if we start to deprivatise land, for example, mm. that gives them less to play with. Or is it that we gave them too much freedom to do whatever they want to do? So it's both and they reinforce each other. And I think it comes back to the argument I made at the beginning, the kind of the Michael Hudson, Sashminsky argument about uh, how financial power reinforces itself, how it leads to this debt deflation cycle, uh, financial instability, all that sort of stuff. When you have assets concentrated amongst, you know, 
rents or um, any return to capital are not necessarily a bad thing if assets are distributed widely. If they are held by a small number of people um, and they're, by virtue of holding those things, they are able to extract ever more from ordinary people, which is what ends up happening, thereby you know, allowing them to buy more stuff and inc- increasingly, exponentially uh, polarising ownership, that's when you get the problem. And that's what we're in now. That is basically the nature of, of financial capitalism. Um, so just, I mean, even, just changing the nature of ownership, like fundamentally mm. transforms... It, it, it does transform yeah. capitalism. I mean, I want to draw attention also to, I think, uh, something that doesn't get discussed very often, and I don't, I don't really know why, and it's, it's analogous to some of the stuff that Grace is talking about. And it is in no sense a kind of revolutionary move. It's not. It's perfectly compatible with capitalism as it is. Um, that, that's not what I'm claiming here. But is is um, the existence in Quebec of solidarity funds. So these are things that are controlled by organised labour. Uh, they were... introduced uh, in 1983 uh, by legislation Uh, and by 1985 they had about 5,000 member shareholders uh, and the fund had assets of uh, 14.3 million Canadian dollars, this is 1985. And they invest according to trade union ethics, so it has kind of normative criteria, so they're going to invest in things uh, that help build working class power, that that don't pollute, etc, etc. So there are social criteria as well. they have working class investors, so the shareholders, and they operate according to long term investment strategies. So it's patient capital. It's not going to pull out um, of investment early on and, and kind of uh, sell you on the market. Uh, it, it has, you know, obviously government support, but it also is involved in kind of actively involved with, with its company partners as well. So it provides development as well as being a fund. So it, it provides training uh, for, 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 for these kind of small, medium enterprises, technical advice. So it effectively is a development agency as well as an investor. And it has that educative role as well. Uh, in 2013, 2014, 2017, sorry, last year, <laughs> the, the, found, the, the funds hold 13.7 billion uh, Canadian dollars in net assets and has 646,000 owner shareholders. This, I think, is is not like the, the perfect model for, for, for changing the way in which ownership operates in the economy. But I think it is important in, in thinking about ways in which you can pull ownership out of these kind of centralized structures and also engage that normative question as well. And I think that that, that actually... Is, is, a, is a strong way to win the argument. And you can point to that in saying, like, this, this also involves a return for you, the owner-shareholder. So that engages that question of cynicism or, or kind of scepticism, Michael, that, that you're concerned about, I think, in terms of kind of general popular uh, uh, engagement. I mean, we haven't broached it yet, but there's also the issue of GDP. Because if we're doing all of this stuff, then it's like you're trying to lose weight and you're checking your shoe size. You're measuring the wrong thing. Um, so, I mean... Surely attendant with all of this, uh, the creation of national investment banks, changes in fiscal policy, monetary policy, we would also have to say, look, we don't want to actually measure, measure gross domestic product anymore. Because if you, I mean, if you look at capitalism as a system which is effectively it's, you know, let's get all Andreas Malm. You know, it's, um, it's the convergence of an energy paradigm with new technologies in the 1780s, <clears throat> meets a certain orthodoxy. Market capitalism is born the factory system, we get globalisation. But it isn't until, until the 1930s that somebody called Simon Kuznets comes up with the idea of GDP. Most people think GDP is as old as, you know, capitalism. And my suspicion is that actually we've been undergoing significant changes in the value form, so to speak, that actually we're going to eventually need a new way of capturing value, mm-hmm. just purely because the, 
there's a great quote, and it comes from uh, Salah, wasn't it? He says, you see the computer age, the information age everywhere, except the productivity statistics. And I suspect mm-hmm. when it comes to GDP and with productivity, we aren't measuring the right things anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's both an observation, but again, it's also a normative point, yeah. because we want to measure things like uh, atmospheric carbon, mm-hmm. uh, how happy people are, uh, health and lifespan. So, just a question there. I mean, I should also say that we are going to have Andreas Malm on the show soon when he's back in in England. Fossil Capital, a really important and vital book. Um, Yeah, I think that is important. I mean, it's also, you know, the way in which these metrics work. So, GDP, uh, you know, (laughs) uh, it it doesn't measure the kind of extractive cost. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't take into account kind of global supply chains and actually where labour is actually done. It's kind of endpoint value as well. Um, I want to move on because we've got just under five minutes left. And the stuff we've been discussing today, in some, in some ways, I don't think necessarily, but in some ways presupposes a more or less functioning economy, whether it's just stagnant or whether it's even growing, growing very marginally. That's not the only scenario in which the Labour Party, which is the vehicle of many of these ideas, could come into government. It's quite possible that the Labour Party will come into government with a Brexit-induced recession uh, or a recession undertaken you know or or spurred by other means what is the scope for doing this stuff in unfavorable economic circumstances does it help maybe build resiliency it increases the possibility because if you have a if you have deflation in the economy which a recession would be that gives the government even more opportunity to invest everywhere without it causing inflation so i mean that's a, 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 a recession is an invitation for the kind of government intervention that we want to see yeah i i I mean, even if we, we don't come to power during... during Not that Navarra Media wants a recession. <laughs> <laughs> Shock doctor. <laughs> I mean, even if we didn't come to power during a recession... Um, well, the Labour Party didn't come to power during a recession. Um, <laughs> important dividing lines here, comrades. Important dividing lines. Um, you know, there's going to be a sustained attack on... Uh, on any kind of radical left-wing UK government, you would see perhaps, you know, a run on the currency, a massive sell-off of bonds, which again is another reason that it would be very important to do these things immediately because, you know, if you had um, a, a massive part of... of not of the power of financial capital is their ability to discipline governments by their ownership of of government debt and and forex and all these sorts of things. Um, So, yeah, moving towards a more socialised model would mean actually buying up, you know, the state or uh, buying up some of its own debt. And again, in a a kind of deflationary scenario, that wouldn't be as bad and that would limit the power of markets to discipline. But yeah, I mean, this would be, it would be a massive challenge. And this is why it's so important not to rely on just... Uh, discrete policy solutions to individual problems, but actually to kind of build a lasting uh, social base upon which a broader transformation of of society and the economy can occur. I mean, I would say, again, it ties into that GDP question. You know, when people said there was Wall Wall Street crash 1929, the Great Depression, they weren't looking at GDP, they were looking at unemployment and they they were looking at the stock exchange, you know, the market capitalisation of America's leading companies, which tanked, by the way. And I think that, again, it's part of that broader project that when we come to power, we need to, there needs to be a pervasive common sense. And I doubt it would happen the first time. Sorry, I don't mean we, I mean Labour. I doubt it would happen the first time. Um, We... Uh, one, it's, the, it's, an, it's an issue around the third person singular in English. One, um, uh, one would suspect that you would need a, a, a broader um, metric by which to judge political and economic success. 
you could see a stagnant economy, even slight recession, a Japan style for 20 years, and yet life expectancy goes up, literacy goes up, home ownership goes up, carbon emissions are eliminated. So I think that's part of the project there. You know, what is a recession? We're, you know, we're in a social recession in many ways, or many factors, life expectancy, home ownership, productivity, wages. We're in a kind of recession already. But on this one thing called GDP, we're not. And I think that's the sort of thing that we need to kind of discredit. Right. Well, that, I think, is the place where we're going to have to leave it. And uh, I just... I, I, maybe for, for 30 seconds, the most exciting thing uh, in this report. Anyone want to jump in? Um, I suppose nationalising those utility companies is the beginning of expropriating their NTAs. Uh, so I hope that we can find ways to continue that across the economy. The bank stuff wasn't in that report, was it? No, unfortunately not. Next time, comrades. Next That's time. What next I'm report. Most excited about. Next report. <laughs> Euthanasia of the Rentier begins yeah. here and now. <laughs> this has been Navarra FM. Thank you all three for joining me. It has been fabulous. I will be back here, same time, same place, next week. Bye bye. This show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarro Media can exist only thanks to the generosity of our subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navarromedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarro Media. Media for a different politics.